Hello, Trash Future listeners. This week's free episode is going to be out on Wednesday as Riley just got back into town and is preparing the notes. In the meantime, please enjoy this unlocked bonus episode featuring Dominic Loyster of the Eurotrash podcast in a discussion about fuel prices and energy markets and why the UK's fuel costs are skyrocketing. Hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of TF. It is me, Riley, and I'm here with Milo, Alice, and Hussein. And Stop. we oh, have just... Nice. God damn it. Uh. <laughs> you know what? Here's the thing. We have a guest in the second half of this episode. Uh, it's Dominic Loyster, Premium host, guest. host of the... <laughs> God damn it. Host of the uh, Eurotrash podcast with Anton Yeager, who's the research director of the LSE Global Economic Governance Commission. And I'm really, Yeager, really... The inventor of woo-woo. I'm really, really happy... That uh, he didn't have to hear you say bonus in your stupid sexy no, but He's going to hear it when, when he listens back. So. Yeah, it's a good job he didn't hear it, because he'd have come instantly. <laughs> yeah. He'd have yeah, the, the right podcast the that makes our guests come. That's, That's right. Trash Future Promise. Yeah, the ISS would have been in serious danger. <laughs> Before we start off, I want to uh, revisit uh, actually something of a new friend. Oh. Uh, I, it, I, 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 this was handed to me on the news ticker today. Um, <laughs> okay, if those of you who listened to the recording of the last live show, mm. you will remember uh, that we spoke about city coins. That's right. Such as Miami coin and NYC coin. Alice, mm. for your benefit, just really quickly. Mm. Since I was is... being played by a stand up of Kyle Marx at the live show. No, this oh, is the no, other live show. The other live show yeah. Oh, I see. You did, there was no stand up uh, yeah, playing you at all. I was coming to live no. shows. Y- you were being played by Asimo holding an iPad with a picture of you on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so basically, uh, uh, there's this uh, thing called City Coins, and it's a way for uh, you to invest in cities uh, by um, basically, uh, you know what? It's- uh, what's what's the dumbest yeah. possible city that could do this? Fucking like Neon, Donetsk, uh, Donetsk <laughs> no, no. Miami. Yeah, Miami. Of course. Mm. Yeah. So basically, it was it's. The, the long and short of it is that they it's a basically a Miami of, coin yep. based on predicted sea level mm. rises. Uh, I'm afraid it's too late to short Miami coin. It's down 95 percent. Oh, because of sea uh, level right. rises, or uh, you could still make a small return if you shorted it now. Uh, I'm it would sure. Cost so much to borrow. Because uh, <laughs> everyone's trying to borrow it to short it. Uh, legally, this is not investment advice. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, anyway, so um, the way it works, right? For, for refresh your memory, uh, is it's a way to replace taxes. With allowing people to invest in cities. Oh my god! So wait, wait, wait. Sorry, not to recapitulate a whole live show here, but they were gonna like, much like Eric Adams and the mayor of Miami, whose name I forgot, were like competing about taking their paychecks in Bitcoin. They're also now, or were also, going to collect city taxes in in. Well, it's the, the 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 argument, right? Wait, in Miami it's, coin. Yes. Uh, the argument is that instead that you do away with taxes entirely. And then depending on how good of a city you are, then people invest in you by buying your coin, and then they can like stake it for rewards, and those rewards are what you other it's people use to try idea. to buy the coin. Of course it's a terrible yeah, idea. Yeah. That's why it's in the middle of the failing. ideas that we talk about on this show are normally so good. Yeah, but if you have like if you live in Miami and you have Miami coin, then you can get like a gold skinned AK or whatever, oh, you know. You can't get, oh no no, you don't <laughs> get anything with it. Oh, okay. No, no, no. You just hold it and then it allows you to win money other people mm. are gambling trying to get one, and yeah. then some of the money is diverted to the city's wallet. As soon as I as soon as I show up in Miami, I appear as Rick and Morty. <laughs> um, yeah, so, the Miami verse. Uh, 
So basically, like, just imagine, though, like, you've spent the last several years or at least even several months trying to, like, carve out a niche for yourself because you're like, Mm. wow, I can't believe the economy has been changed forever by the blockchain. And then opening up the annual Bitcoin conference in Miami by calling yourself the most Bitcoin-friendly mayor on the planet. I think the only thing probably worse than that is if uh, you actually tried to introduce Bitcoin as as a currency held by your central bank and that caused a default. Hmm. Yep. Well, I've done it. So Um, good work. It says, by carving out this political lane, Suarez has increased his appeal to the deep-pocketed Silicon Valley libertarians and cryptocurrency disciples (laughs) that he's recruited to relocate to Miami over the last several years. But again, it's now just like worth barely anything. Like uh, everyone who's decided they wanted to get in on like the future of taxes. It's turned out that all you've done is given tons of money to the early to the first people in. Hmm. That was the result. And Miami got like a few million dollars the first month, then almost no money. And now it's worth next to... It was worth almost nothing. We talked about it uh, in, the, uh, in the live show. Now it's worth 95% less than that. <laughs> yeah, well, 95% of nothing is... Uh, it's, uh, that's, uh, no, sorry, 95% less than nothing. That's, uh, that's not good. Uh, mm. So the, the, the founder... Because remember, it's a private company that's trying to get cities to get on board. Um, the founder insists that it can and will have practical applications soon. Of course, now that tons of money has been channeled into it. Of course. Uh, it, <laughs> he insisted city... Co- he, he, I love this. He acknowledged legitimate criticisms of cryptocurrencies, but insists that city coins... It's terrible. <laughs> but insisted city coins is an exception. The rare pr- crypto product with transformative potential. And he says... What- sure, it's lost 95% of its value now, but you stop thinking about the short term. Yeah, of course. Um... Yeah, it's that. It, it's just the uh, just to see like to see that what I like topics I now consider to be our sweet children to go out into the world and flourish. They're uh, leaving by... the nests, and by <laughs> nest I mean profitability. Yeah, that's right. That is correct. Um, yeah. So the but the just the idea like the idea that you were gonna like replace taxes with gambling um, yeah. entirely, and just like replace public services with you know like. A, a thing that'll let you bid on going through a red light or whatever. Um, oh, yeah, awesome. It's just, it's just, it's, 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 I mean, we all knew it was going to fail, but it is laughable to see it actually fail. Miami hasn't lost its sense of self. It's still doing really dumb stuff, and that's what's important. That's the character of Miami, mm. you know? Absolutely. Mm. Um, and they'll learn nothing from this. No. And that's removing, the, in, removing the Miami mm. crypto bull so that all of these guys who've lost all of their money on crypto can focus on their mental health. Exactly. Yeah, we're putting the Miami crypto bull in a box. <laughs> about the Miami, about the crypto bull, so much. Mm. We're locking it in there with Ed Sheeran. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, look. Here's the thing. I've decided. I've decided uh, where there. Look, there was there some stuff that happened in Britain. Did some Tory ministers say some airheaded shit? Of course they did. They always every do. week. Every week. Every week. Um, because they understand content. They know you've got to be churning it out every right. week. Yeah. So in, in, in this case, uh, some or other uh, minister has said, look, the cost of, of living is rocketing up. Uh, wages are not keeping pace. We're certainly not going to help with benefits. So why doesn't everyone in the country just get a promotion or move to combat the cost of living crisis? Yeah, why don't they move to Miami? Yeah. Yeah. And this, yeah, this was right. the week after another conservative MP had said, oh, there's no real rise in food bank. it's banks. It's just that people don't know how to cook. Yeah. Oh. Um, and again, like... You know, I think it's. Uh, I do think it's true of you two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I do think it's very. It, I do think the idea of taking that to its logical conclusion, right? What what this minister Rachel McLean said, 
which is that, well, ev- everyone in the country gets a promotion and moves to a high-wage yeah, area. Yeah, this is what leveling up is. Yeah, it's just trying to put everyone in one big trade union, actually, <laughs> where we're all going to collectively bargain. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Everyone from, you know, the, the, the steel workers through to, like, the spreadsheet people through to people who do the reception at the nail salon, they're all going to be in one big, really unwieldy union, and they're all going to go to their various different bosses on the same day, and they're going to go, hey, this is, we're not calling it a trade union because it's a Tory thing, but w- more money. Yeah. I, I like the idea that what we do instead is we simply find and kill the top earning person in the country, mm. and everyone else moves up one. You just get the person Ooh. above you's income. And you also get their job, even if it's something completely yeah. different to you. Like, ah, mm. oh, so you're a plumber. Now, the person above you was um, actually an architect. Well, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to see those surgeons do podcasting. Well, yeah, exactly. I would. Yeah. I would. It's, I think, I think the, the, the funnier implication is that, like, every, if that on a long enough timeline, everyone just converges on the same either software engineering or like Saudi defense ministry advising job. Mm. Oh, we all get Matt Damon's job in Syriana. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, every, everyone in Britain is going to appear as Matt Damon in the crypto.com commercial uh, one week too late to profit from it. Well, <laughs> on yeah, we're, we're not really that far away from like one of the ministers just sort of, you know, talking about how everyone in the country should have a side hustle because that's what's really going to keep the economy going, which is to say that like ultimately this, uh, the future of this country rests on basically like at least half of the country becoming content creators. Mm. Yeah. yeah, no, Get totally. a TikTok. That's the Tory like, advice. The, the, perfect, the perfect balance. Half TikTok creators, half landlords. Yeah, and then yeah. All, and and then and of course TikTok landlords, which is another entirely cursed category. Well, the, those then, will be our elite. They will rule us. The, the mm. model, the model is actually sort of there because, like, I I was looking like for 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 my other show, I was looking up like uh, what some of the kind of OG YouTubers were up to, like now that they're old, right? So like your Zoellas and everything, and mm. they've basically become landlords. Yeah, like they've ba- old. like how old is Zoella? Um. Like older, yeah. older, like older age, probably. Yeah, <laughs> old yeah. enough to have a kid. But like you know, as yeah. as as the like the YouTube money sort of like dries up, like you know, what the never strategy has sort of been in investing. Oh, she's in a year older and... than me. She is old. Fuck <laughs> <it>. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, and and it's kind of like okay, will she go back into sort of doing like baby content? I don't know, but like it's very evident. And like this is stuff that even like Twitch streamers and like you know esports people are sort of being told as well, which is that like you know the party lasts for a really short time. So basically you want to invest in real estate. So what we're going to see is that like you have like OG content creators becoming uh, landlords and then renting out their properties to younger TikTokers uh, in the form of big hype houses where you have 20 people living in a property making videos where the landlord then gets a commission. So that's the that's the business plan for Trash Future yeah. then. That's also, also yeah, that's, that's, also the, that's also the Conservative Party uh, twenty twenty four manifesto. <laughs> so yeah. that's 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 what they call House of Parliament. You know me, what? Me as and far Rob as Cole I'm concerned, though. as far as I'm concerned, that's the circular economy, and I refuse to learn otherwise. Yeah, don't don't let anyone tell you that we're not giving back to the community as we rent out our studio to them. The epic meal time guys not eating such epic meals anymore. It's been some lean years. There's the seven thin cows over at Epic Meal Time. Just a one measly bacon strip for tea this evening, Father. The good uh, thing is, it'll never happen to us. Well, That's look, right. here's the thing. Yeah, we're here's fine. We've got a very solid business plan. I, I have Ooh. something yeah. today. I, I have something today to talk about. Uh, it's not a startup, 
Uh, it is a Web3 project, but it does have something it does other than just provide liquidity between different pools that exist to provide one another liquidity and keep the tokens moving. They are trying to actually do a thing that is recognizable as a thing. Mm. Okay, all right. I love how low the bar is now. <laughs> They're trying to do a thing that you'll look at and you'll be like, oh, that's a thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I recognize that. that that's has, an item. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not just like, you're not just like, weirdly backwards inventing a form of interbank lending but where there's no ultimate beneficiary except the people who own the banks phenomenology on startups fantastic yeah exactly yeah look so uh alice you showed this to me so you know what it is and it was sent in by a listener but i want you to tell me antara a-n-t-a-r-a it is a web3 project that is producing something recognizable in the world is it come? <laughs> is it producing, yeah, is it producing <laughs> come? Are they finally going to build come from the building blocks? Yeah. Come know. three. Uh, right. I'm so, Yo, I'm new so cum sorry. just dropped. I'm so sorry, Dominic. Uh, Antara. A-N-T-A-R-A. I'll give you another hint. It's in Neom. Give you, give you another other hint since I know what is this it is. it come? <laughs> <laughs> what, what's, what's another industry that's also full of scams and like producing projects that never really get made? Uh, cars, maybe? Um, I'm, getting, I'm getting warmer. Uh, yeah. mm. B- course, big we projects. We scams so we couldn't get made. <laughs> yeah. Big projects, a lot of money, but a lot of them electric, never really. Is, like... is it like an electric vehicle project? Or... Uh, 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 I'd say it is to do with something that would have been considered a vehicle at one point in history. <laughs> oh, oh, it's so a Richard Linklater movie. So are, they, are they reinventing the penny farthing? No, 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 Milo, you almost had it. Yeah. Okay, so it's a movie. It's a movie, yes. Right, okay. They're awesome. making a movie, and it is... Uh, Are they going to use all the bored apes? Well, it's oh, close. Uh, it's, instead of apes, it's camels. Oh. Yeah. So it's uh, the Epic of Antara, the first major <gasps> We're movie We're doing Avatar, but with camels. Is it Avatar, but with camels? Well, uh, no, it, it retells a... Uh, it, it retells the... It's, it's a sword and sandals epic set in the 6th century. A dire- sword and sandals oh epic. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Is it like some some Emirati country is doing a yes. Web3 project to yes. tell the story about, like, the Prophet Muhammad or something? I don't know. Close enough. It is a 6th century Arabian warrior. Uh, they are doing essentially, like, Muslim Ben-Hur through an NFT foundation. Okay. And okay. I, I will say one other thing about this, which is that uh, as of January this year, there was a bidding war as to where they would film this thing between Abu Dhabi and Neom. <laughs> How are you going to film it in Neom? It's just a line! Well, the camel starts from one side and goes to the other side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like the um, uh, the sets you use to make a car look like it's moving. It's just, well, I mean, yeah. it's like the movie Lock, because in the movie Lock, he goes from Birmingham to Manchester, Birmingham to London, um, and the whole movie is just like this one car journey, and he goes through a bunch of shit on that very straight car journey. Um, so it's that, but with the camel going from one side of Neom to the other. Mm. Yeah, and the camel needs to get some help from some McKinsey consultants who are helpfully <laughs> all there. So it's, I mean, because the thing is, like, if you're... So I just follow the big fake moon and you can't get lost. So I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to share a link to uh, a pictures of the camels. We can take this part look, out of you. Yeah, the camels look like the worst shit you've ever seen. It looks ha- worse than bored apes. I, I, I'm also... Can you it to the podcast as well? I'll put it up on here. I'm also going to point out that if you go to the homepage of Arabian Camels, arabiancamels.io, 
you can Which scroll is actually down. what that uh, what that Tory MP was trying to do in the comments <laughs> um, when you, you can he had an unfortunate misclick. You can scroll down and you can see partners and helpers, and on that list you will see the University of Oxford, the University of Cambridge, Yale University, and SOAS. Um, and I, I looked into this a little bit, and I thought for a second that this would be a classic case of like university investments, right? It's not the case. What they're actually doing is they're kind of lying a little bit. Uh, because per this other article on Globe Newswire I found, the production of the movie was meticulously put together with the help of professors of Arabic literature from Oxford, Cambridge, Yale, and the School of Oriental and African Studies. So what they've done is they've run this past a professor at each of these institutions in a sort of like, Professor Chomsky, what do you think about NFTs sort of way. <laughs> And then when they've said, yeah, whatever, they've put the fucking logo on the site, which I think gives you an intriguing sort of glimpse of what the vibe is here. Incredible. I've also just seen something on their, on their website which says, hump in, join the caravan. It's like, jump I, in. I don't think they understand what in English the verb hump means. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just fuck your way into the movie. Just an, that's yeah. right. Fuck your way in, or rather, don't fuck, but just kind of rub yourself up against the movie. <laughs> I want to know. I want to know more about the movie. Like, is the camel the main character? Is it like no? The movie's just like played relatively straight. It's just like a sort of desert epic, if you like. Right. Um. But but the movie is in itself an NFT. Wait, it says as seen on MSN. That's so funny. <laughs> as seen on MSN Messenger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People Although, are like messaging me gifts about this. They movie. do say that your NFT can be in the movie. Like you can audition your NFT to be in the what? film. What? How? But NFT, they make the on. NFTs. Okay, so there's three category, right? Categories, right? There is the three categories are. Welcome to the caravan. Arabian Camels is proud to announce the upcoming Antara movie NFT in partnership with Swap Protocol. That's W A P P. Uh, Arabian Camels is the first NFT community to create a $50 million DeFi Hollywood movie together, owned by everyone via NFTs. So the idea being, of course, if you buy this, like, again, just like, it looks exactly like a bored ape, but it's a camel. Um, it's, it's exact same shitty Newgrounds art style. Uh, then you will own some of the rights to this Hollywood film. Uh, so that's no, Not just one. owning the rights to it. If you own an original Arabian Camel NFT then you are eligible to purchase from them uh, an acting role in the movie, yep. a producer I, I credit. So you can literally buy your way... Oh, yeah, yeah. okay, so, so, it's, so it's, doing ne- it's doing a weird kind of, like, nepotism, but not really, but... Yeah, absolutely. You can still I mean, buy listen, your way into... Oh, my movies, God, there's a Marilyn Monroe camel. Movies have been funded by weirder things. In particular, like every art movie you like is usually funded by a cabal of dentists who just had a weird well, no, amount that, of money. That to put really together. happened in Canada. There was a no, tax credit. Yeah, the, the Canadian the Canadian tax credit that led to some of like David Cronenberg's original movies getting made by dentists who wanted to dodge tax. Incredible. But this, but this is uh, this is nothing, and they want to raise fifty million dollars. Nine out of ten dentists agree that this David Cronenberg movie is good. Nine out of ten <laughs> dentists agree that your teeth shouldn't look like that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> mm. As dentists, we are horrified by the content of this film, although we think it is quite good. Uh, do not uh, merge your face with your television; it's not good for your teeth. No, that's right. Uh, watch Videodrome, everyone. Mm. Uh, no, uh, 
NFT holders Make some can, dentists rich. NFT holders can get utility such as acting roles in the movies, come location scouting, get producer credits. Come location scouting. <laughs> <laughs> scouting the location for come? Yeah. Uh, and hang out with the stars cast and crew set in on set in the desert. So basically like you get to be just like you have to like live what I think is actually a quite reasonable dream, which is to just like be a guy wandering around a movie set, just like looking at stuff, eating craft services. Just you're supposed to be there, but you don't have to do anything. Perfect. You can like take a few like awkward selfies with like Jennifer Lawrence um, and like just post them everywhere for the rest of your life. And like, yeah, like make that part of your life story. Yeah. Okay, fine. All right. I can see that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, so Tar- Tarsim Singh is going to be uh, supposed to be directing uh, Antara. Tarsim Singh, of course, also very well known um, uh, for directing uh, for directing uh, uh, Selfless. Um, yeah, that sounds like it says a lot about our society. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, as well as um, as The Cell, uh-huh. uh, but with no, The Cell, very good film uh, with Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Lopez. Uh, but he's most notable for directing uh, music videos, uh, including those above Hold On by On Vogue, Sweet Lullaby by Deep Forest, and Losing My Religion by R.E.M. Absolutely incredible. I'm making a film in a straight line. I'm being paid in oil. <laughs> <laughs> he's being paid in oil that is funded by cryptocurrency. Come on. Or the other way around. Um, you're even getting paid. You're paying them more or less. Uh, so basically, it starts off. There's a there's a a 13 step process to movie to try a triumph of cinema. So you know, um, uh, take take note, all you uh, future screenwriters out there. Yeah, this is exactly this is all drawn directly from the views of Orson Welles. So <laughs> you start with an NFT drop. Uh huh. Number two, uh. Lamborghini, Rolex, and gold bar giveaway upon selling out of the NFTs. I'm sorry. This is this is like if you asked us to make a joke about what rich golf guys would do if they tried to make a movie. <laughs> Lamborghini and gold bar giveaway. Yeah. If, if you're if you're asking yourself who are these people, you can go on their website to the About Us page, and under our team, you can see all of their camels, and yeah. only one of them has the actual name. I love when a guy claims to be like uh, a rich guy from Saudi Arabia and says, hey, I need to fund my movie. Can you give me some money? At some point, one of you will win a Lamborghini. Yes. This feels like you don't even need to like send an email to like an old person. Like all of the sort of like old people who get easily tricked by email stuff, like they're all sort of dying. Um, And now what happens is like no, you need you, you to need get their, like, their kids, their sons. Yeah. Yeah. And they got an email telling them to drink the stuff under the sink, and they were like, "Well, the email <laughs> said it's like the oh, Democrats do don't want you to drink yeah. the stuff under the sink." Oh well, they said if I don't drink the stuff under the sink, then I'll have a, a, a tax interest rate problem. So I better do it. Yeah. And then now that guy's kid. Is getting uh, like uh, is seeing a tweet or seeing an Instagram post that's like being on your hustle, being on your grind set requires you to drink the the chemicals you find under the sink. Yeah. Although in this case, it's just like, oh, I'm not gonna. My I can't believe my grandfather was taken in by that you know person email claiming that they were a prisoner in, in Spain and needed like fifty dollars to pay their bail or whatever. No, but however, I am gonna help fund this movie by 
by, by buying a camel that also enters me into a sort. I got it wrong last time. Lamborghini, gold bar, and Rolex giveaway. <laughs> um, anyway, after that, Arabian Camels 2.0 are unleashed. I don't know what that refers to. Maybe They're going like to do a, a second mechanism. drop, I guess. Yeah. I got two humps. And then location scouting in the desert. Okay, so we've given away the Lamborghinis. We've got the, we got the, the Camels 2.0. And then casting call. Time for auditions. Uh, you, <laughs> at this point, five couch. five steps in, and you're like, cast the movie, okay? <laughs> yeah, we yeah. got to do the Lamborghini giveaway first. Yeah, I mean, that's often where the A24 movies go wrong is they don't do the Lamborghini giveaway. Mm. I mean, again, yeah. like, would I like to see an A24 movie set about the production of this movie set in Neom? I absolutely would. Yes. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rory Kinnear plays every male part again. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. The, the, the Lamborghini giveaway is a metaphor for not being loved by your father. Yeah. See, the th- yeah. People think that Rory Kinnear playing every male role in Men was like a, a thing the movie was trying to say. It's actually a policy A24 has introduced. Rory Kinnear is an NFT. Like You can buy mm. different Rory Kinnears. Yeah, Rory Kinnear FT. Yeah, and then what yeah. you do is then you like audition your Rory Kinnear to cast it in the movie Rory's. Men. Yeah, rare Rory's. That's you right. Got a picture of Rory Kinnear smoking weed. Yeah, get a picture oh, of yeah, it's Rory. Pussy. You get Rory Kinnear as a priest. Rory Kinnear as a punk. Rory Kinnear as a cop. <laughs> Rory and, like, Kinnear looking for them. his own ass. And then you, you know, then you, you could. I, I mean, I'm very excited. I got my uh, Rory Kinnear as a sort of. English gentleman cast in the movie as well. I, I feel like yeah, A twenty four with that movie were like accidentally doing a satire of British British like TV and filmmaking where like there are only the four Rory guys Kinnear's everywhere. Yeah, there are only like four guys that they know, so they have to put them in everything. <laughs> Russell T Davies has to write everything. Uh, Rory Kinnear has to be in everything. This is basically how it works. Yeah, yeah. We, we uh, also missed out one one thing in the middle of this movie roadmap, which is. Oh, uh, I haven't gotten there yet. Oh, please, I, I, go I, ahead. I'm only on casting call time for audition, step five, after the Lamborghini giveaway and the oh, release of Camels so 2.0. Many more steps. Six, yield farming starts for Antara movie NFT holders via swap protocol. So don't worry, you don't need to get the um, movie to be released to get paid back on your investment in the movie. You'll start getting ba- paid back right away, somehow, by a process called yield farming, which has been described by Sam Bankman-Fried the like biggest like crypto uh, exchange investor guy as well. It's like you have a big box and then the people who have the thing take money out of the box and people who want the thing put money into the box and that's how it works. Uh, and what shape is this box? Uh, square <laughs> box. Okay, right. And what shape is the thing inside the box? Uh, well, it's the Antara Play to Earn rating game being made in partnership with the V Empire DAO protocol where you can lease your NFTs to players. So they took that I'm other idea just, as well. I'm not just a movie producer. I'm a landlord of this movie. The V Empire is the best way yeah. to describe crypto, guys. Uh, yeah, they've all got their Vs, all right. Antara <laughs> <laughs> Gaming Token Launch. Uh-huh. Uh, launch of the Antara Play to Earn game. Uh-huh. Uh, and then lights, make the movie? <laughs> no, likes, lights, action, cameras. So make the movie. But they say they, they, that's the order they say it in. Lights, like action, action camera. cameras. Yeah, so they want to start in media res, I guess. <laughs> I love that we're only three steps from the end, and this is the first point at which a movie is being made. <laughs> like anything to do with the making of a movie is actually being done. Draw the rest of the okay. yeah. Well, it's it's step ten is make the movie. Step eleven, <laughs> red carpet premiere. <laughs> I wish that the Whoa. the crypto market hadn't imploded before this could happen because I think it would have been like apocalypse now out there. <laughs> yeah, it would have been I, impressive. I'd have watched. Motherfuckers getting dysentery. 
and shit, you know, fantastic. It would have been great. No one thought to bring any food or water. They all just brought different tokens. The, the entire cast, crew, and supporters of the movie Antara found dead in the deserts of Abu Dhabi. Um, the the Dyatlov Pass incident, but, <laughs> but crypto. Someone clawed his own camel open from the inside. <laughs> and then, of course, box office streaming and blockchain distribution. Oh, Step 13. We have done one of the most significant things of this era. The world is now our oyster. Fair enough. Yeah. So where are uh, they um, along this roadmap? Is it have they done the Rolex thing yet? Even uh, we're still in step one, Alice. We're still in the ground oh. floor. They oh, haven't mm, even okay. done the traditional Lamborghini, Rolex, and gold bar giveaway. Oh wow! Which is more of a formality at this point. You know, if you're doing <laughs> business in well, Saudi Arabia, like you have it's to like do It's like you're that. supposed to say the Scottish play. It's like everyone yeah, knows yeah, that yeah, you yeah. can't make a movie it's without like, a Lamborghini giveaway. Yeah, you, you mm. get into the movie business, you have too many Rolexes to even like count, but. Like, yeah. how do they get they all, get all those for free anyway? Lamborghini, Rolex, and gold just regard it as promotion. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the the thing it's all based on is this swap protocol thing, which again, like I swap with two P's, so you know it's yeah. cool. And again, I I don't know why it's it's there's like oh yeah we based it on this thing that's like monetizing data in general. Like the whole thing just is so fucking bizarre. But apparently, you can. It's like a savings account while the movie's being made. It's a savings account that earns eighty percent. Now, I I, oh. I, I want to note something here, which yeah, is yeah, as in you put in your money, and then at the end you have eighty percent of it. That's <laughs> very generous. Yeah, Riley, yeah, I sent I sent you the website for this, and then you put the website in in the chat for this podcast. And between us, the hosts of this podcast have managed to uh, take down the site. <laughs> Incredible! It's just not loading anymore. <laughs> too many people. Yeah, too many people were excited about the camels. Whoa! There's been a surge of interest in the Antara movie. The servers can't handle it. Okay, so just there are three fleeing town. Uh, three more people um, uh, involved. Uh, Tarasim Singh, one of the most unique, direct, unique directors. Enough to crash the website between them. Despite being in talks with the agents of Oliver Stone, it was decided that Tarsim was the best director to make Antara into a bold and artistic desert epic with his strong eye for culture, sophistication, and a cinematic talent to West. Technically, yeah. if you say, would you like to do this movie, and they say no, you are in talks about them doing the movie. Yeah. We realized that Oliver Stone was too smart to make this movie. Come on, <laughs> wouldn't you love to see an Oliver Stone movie about... The, like, just... Just now, like, the Saudi Arabian <laughs> government will, will have you believe that all this camel here is Walked uh, out of the embassy. <laughs> that's right. But I think you'll find the camel is actually a, a, a GIF or JPEG represented uh, on the blockchain. It's not actually a, a, a physical camel as I, such. I need to see Oliver Stone's Khashoggi at yeah, yeah, immediately. Yeah. There's yeah. also Stuart Sutherland. Stuart is a producer on Gerard Butler's $50 million Kandahar movie, which is currently finishing its shoot in Saudi Arabia. Wow, that's mm. crazy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he is Gerard Butler, known for his good films. <laughs> and then Mark Fusco. Mark Fusco worked as Steven Spielberg's assistant for almost 15 years. Oh, well, assisting at the right hand of the, of the master. He must have picked up a lot. Um... And then Alexa Alexander uh, Amartai. M- uh, the project was conceptualized, written, and pulled together uh, by Alexander. Um, Alexander has a background in equities, real estate, and film finance, and the brainchild behind movies NFTs. And finally, the last person involved is Arabian Camels, the Arabian Camels NFT community. Great. Um, who are and, inducing- and, and NFT own and rubes like you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, shall we? Um, 
Shall by we uh, I mean I uh, shall I uh, have a conversation with uh, Dominic Loyster about well, how uh, European energy prices got so fucked up? Well, none of no, us Ryan. will be able to answer you. We we, yeah. we have no mouth, but we must uh, we must scream. You know. Yeah, we ha- we ha- I have I have no bed. I have a bed, but I do not sleep. What am I? <laughs> <laughs> European energy pricing. Flowers. Oh, oh, yeah, European yeah. energy pricing as Flowers a punchline. Yeah. yeah, European yeah. energy pricing. Yeah. That would I be know, good. Cum? I think the Sphinx. The, 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 the two poles yeah. of trash future punchlines. I don't know. Come and European energy pricing. That's right. Those are the two. Those are the two. It's called a mm. dialectic, folks. That's right. One is directly related to another. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be Riley in the past European slash future pricing. Yeah, yeah, he's going to talk God, about so European sorry, cum pricing. <laughs> no, we're not. We're going to talk about European energy pricing and how it's related to deregulation. Look, cum is, it contains energy. <laughs> uh, okay, let's roll it. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to this second segment of uh, whatever show we are doing. I'm sure that uh, those jokers, including me, in the first segment had some... Uh, fantastically uh, insightful things to say, by which I mean, I'm sure I had some fantastically insightful things today, and my cretinous friends talked over me the whole time. Uh, but I have once again uh, slipped the surly bonds of, uh, of those uh, clowns I work with uh, to bring you an interview uh, with Dominic Loyster, who, in addition to being the co-host of uh, the Eurotrash podcast with Anton Yeagerman, and is also, though not in that capacity, in this capacity as a uh, podcaster, uh, is also the uh, in charge of the is a research director of the LSE Global Economic Governance Commission. Uh, and we are going to talk a little bit about how energy prices, especially in Europe, got so uh, crazy. So, Dom, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Um, so, I just want to start off with, uh, and this is sort of something we spoke about briefly before the recording, um, with looking at a little bit of what the what the, it's like, what it's like buying energy in Europe. Uh, this thing that like everyone needs that plays a major role in setting prices in the rest of the economy that people actually experience, um, and and just think about how we got to a place where energy has remained at such a high price. Um, and has been such a persistently um, sort of pricey element of the economy. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things that's, that's widely overdetermined, but you you can say that they have some common causes, and that these causes can be found in in, in the type of um, economic governance framework that was adopted over the last decades. Um, in in some in in some in one part of the story. Um, is a bit different, perhaps, because unlike the other two elements that lead up to this entire crisis, um, which were deregulated at some point or re-regulated to make it more flexible and to make it more um, you know, more open to certain market forces, which introduce these price volatilities that we're seeing at the moment, the um, commodities trading sector was never actually regulated, and maybe that's a good place to start because I think it's. Currently, um, probably the most overlooked part of this entire crisis, and we can get to why retail and consumer prices are so incredibly high at the moment. Um, but the things that they feed into it are these: this strange sort of swashbuckling world of commodity trading firms, the financial industry um, that sort of 
evolve to to bet on future commodity prices, and then how these prices feed into the the market structure in uh, of the European Union and in the UK and 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 elsewhere, where these wholesale prices are then transformed into consumer retail prices. Um, so the first th- where we have to start, I think, is in the late nineties and the US in particular. Um, the Clinton administration in, the, in 1999 um, wanted to pass a bill that would essentially allow financial actors to bet on the future movement of commodity prices, whether this be oil, gas, or you know, um, food items, concentrated orange juice, um, you name it. Um, and this was sort of snuck into a bill in 2000, which essentially opened up these this derivative markets for um, large banks and, and uh, brokerages. So you could yeah. now buy futures on these different commodities. And, and if I may just sort of jump in for a second here as well, as I understand it, like these markets were created and opened on the basis that allowing speculation, essentially, as you say, betting on the future price would... What, 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 was, what was the ostensible justification? We know what happened. It created sort of chaos for many people, but then huge returns for those betting. But the ostensible purpose was what was it? Just improved price discovery, like price smoothing. Like what was the what was it supposed to do? This reform. That's always the question, right? I mean, in a way, there's sort of um, an ex ante case for doing it ideologically because you want to see if you can um, invest in a factory or in a house or anything else. You're also just betting on future returns and, and price movements. So why shouldn't you be able to do it for other goods? But yeah, the point is that well, you know, in the long run, it'll stimulate more supply and it will um, you know, by making these markets terribly competitive bring down the price for consumers that's the ostensible justification for doing so mm-hmm. um, interestingly I think we have to preface this by saying um, there isn't a lot of good data first of all um, to su- substantiate that claim but also frankly to, to, to fully substantiate the claim that these things have led to more price volatility um, and there are some examples where some commodities are actually exempt from this um, from this bill, mm-hmm. and they are they're still quite um, volatile. So there's famously the Onions Futures Act, which uh, <laughs> exempts onions, and for some reason, box office uh, box office receipts, which were added like fifty years later, from this entire infrastructure, uh, this derivatives ecosystem, and um, nonetheless, we still have these these huge fluctuations in onion prices that hit particularly emerging markets like India very, 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 very badly. There's something else at work here, but the, the point is that these developments um, and this market for over-the-counter derivatives, which is totally unregulated, so you just, you and a counterparty, and, you know, it could be two banks, you engage in this bet on the movement of um, oil prices or nickel prices or whatever, um, and you you create uh, um, these volatile asset classes in the end, which over um, the last two decades have have pushed prices to enormous highs. First, before the financial crisis, and then uh, in the in the, the latter half of the last decade, mm-hmm. um, they also they become more volatile overall. So they also plummet after these uh, these these instances, but. These heights uh, lead to a lot of social instability in the interim. Mm-hmm. And so, what we have, right, just is, if as I understand it correctly, yeah, we have these 
ability to bet on bet on commodity crisis creating a huge amount of volatility and into that we have as well um the kind of wholesale liberalization of the uh european energy market kind of from the 1990s again where the idea is well if we if we have all of these extremely competitively priced commodities and then we allow um the energy sector to again like intensively um sort of compete internally um with with itself and um and to try and offer the best uh you know price to consumers for example the argument is and again it's like this is this seems to be the justification which is that all of this competition is going to naturally produce uh sort of the uh, uh, optimal stable outcomes for all of the for the consumers who are then empowered to make the choice as to where to put their money, and that could either be retail consumers or that could be industry or whatever, right? Yeah, but I mean, we shouldn't forget that this is also very clearly um, uh, this was enacted the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of two thousand, the one I mentioned, and the, these reforms in the energy market in Europe over the nineties. With the idea that it would boost private profits as well, right? And that seems a good thing because more income is better, and you is a taxable this is taxable income as well, right? So you just mm-hmm. you're creating a market which was previously quite um, uh, regulated and which didn't actually provide a lot of opportunities for firms to become engaged in to make a profit. And then the 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 addendum to that is well, and and that would um, stimulate more investment. Uh, from the private sector because there's a profit to be made. And then that would increase supply and that would in the end be better for everyone because then you have more flexibility um, um, and you have lower prices uh, for consumers, yes. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, this is this was the logic, right? You know, this is this is what they, they sort of thought. But I, I, maybe we let's talk a little bit about how sort of relinquishing just relinquishing this much control of the energy market this crucial this thing that again is so crucial that where the price of energy is so is quite linked to inflation for example right let's talk about some of the chaos that actually resulted from this yeah so um as you say the headline inflation figures if you disaggregate them there's a very large energy component right that's why there's the called core inflation, which is um, strips away things like energy and food. And there's a reason why we have that. It's because energy and food prices are quite volatile. Um, and they've just become more volatile um, over the last uh, decades, uh, as we said. And what that means is that they've become detached from fundamentals. So the price of oil might be at $140 or something uh, outrageous, but it might rise very quickly over the course of a few months, even if supply and demand barely moved relative to each other in that period. And that reflects the behavior of financial actors, but it also reflects at the retail level, the market structure through which these prices are fed. And I think just have to take a brief step back and talk about how the European, the EU's way of structuring their wholesale energy market has made things worse. Mm-hmm. And it has even made things quite bad in, in countries like France, which rely very heavily uh, on nuclear energy, which should be an advantage for them, of course. They don't actually need that much gas. They might need it for domestic heating, which isn't fully electrified yet, so you still need gas for heating, and you need uh, gas for like your industrial feedstocks, whatever. Right? Mm-hmm. But that, it still has a huge impact on um, electricity prices because of how these electricity prices sort of piggyback off um, the... Uh, the, the, the higher gas prices. And that has to do with this, this 
auction model called uh, Pay As You Clear. It's um, in the US, sometimes it's called uniform price auctions or single single price clearing auctions. Or in Europe, they're called Pay As You Clear. Mm-hmm. What that means is, um, you know, different producers of electricity bid into the market and they establish a price according to their production costs. And that will always start with renewable energies because they don't they don't cost anything to produce, right? They're just mm-hmm. they're out there, solar and wind. Um, you just need to build the infrastructure, and then you can, you can sort of produce them quite easily. And you you start with you bid on the cheapest and end up um, at the most marginal, most expensive energy uh, source in this sort of bid stack. And um, once the full demand is satisfied. Everyone obtains the price of the last producer from which the ener- the energy was bought, electricity mm-hmm. was bought. Um, so if, if I just can confirm my understanding here, right? We're saying if I'm if I have a wind a wind farm that's supplying you know um, like one gigawatt hour at, for free, and you've got a um, natural gas plant that's supplying the same amount for let's say a hundred dollars, then we all get paid a hundred dollars for our units of electricity. Um, uh, and sort of regardless of how much it costs to produce, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, a, a, a different one, um, a different way of putting this might be you um, compare it to the other model, which is pay as you bid. In other words, everyone gets paid their actual bid, if you like, uh, that they literally get paid the price they bid. This one, you get, so if company A bids um, at 20 pence per kilo, uh, kilowatt, um, but you need more flexibility, so you, you have a second company um, also wins part of the auction, and they bid a little bit higher, thirty uh, pence per kilowatt. Everyone pays the higher price, the thirty pence, as opposed to everyone paying what they uh, what they actually bid. And this is supposed to um, this is also called marginal clearing, the marginal clearing price. So the, you pay the price at which the entire market clears, and the reason. Why this is linked to the gas price because gas is actually the most expensive to produce. So it's, it's the most marginal price. If demand is actually quite high, as it is during winter, as it is during this sort of global supply crunch, um, you sort of move up this bid stack and you end up with gas, um, and that's quite a high price. And then the, the whole market clears at that very high price, and that's how the high gas price feeds into the the the, the, the normal retail electricity price, even in a country that doesn't actually require a lot of gas. Mm. So effectively, what we're saying is we've sort of set up the market in such a way that um, number that extremely high commodity prices driven by speculation will just feed into it. And then in terms of actually buying energy, whatever we because of this system of marginal pricing that, I, as I understand it, was introduced actually um, to try to... Uh, uh, green the energy system by encouraging renewable production, but what is actually done is just expose everyone very directly to the most, the highest marginal um, swings in speculation and things like natural gas. Yeah, it was um, it, this sort of marginal pricing. It, it prevents consumers from benefiting from cheap renewables. Yes, and that means that low cost sort of green generators actually benefit quite enormously from expensive gas prices because if the clearing price is higher they get paid more but um yeah the consumer gets screwed in this whole in this whole situation um and this you can actually make the argument that in normal times this may um yield 
um, relatively low prices, but it's not equipped for this kind of um, uh, disruption. And that shows you where this kind of system comes from. It assumes that these kind of disruptions aren't possible or not are not the norm because markets are uh, are globally efficient and just in time supply chains are going to always work out and politics are never going to get in the way supply chains are quite efficient and that's why it's built on this dumb assumption that everything is going to work out fine with the global energy market which it doesn't of course it's yeah it really does seem like it's it's another example of sort of the the general sort of neoliberal set of assumptions just being that well if we design our energy market in a frictionless vacuum and assume that everyone, uh, not only in um, within these markets that we're designing, but everyone outside them who could possibly affect them, we're going to just make some crazy assumptions about how they're going to act. And if that all goes well, then we can fulfill our mandate of, say, shrinking the state, increasing private profit, of um, promoting competition, whatever that means, right? Um, and then all we have to assume is that this very delicately built machine, when it's, I don't know, put out in the real world, isn't going to encounter, say, a stiff breeze or um, anything unexpected, a car going by, uh, and so on, which just seems like an incredibly reckless way to structure something. As Again, I want to sort of come back to, I not sort of come back to, but want to reemphasize, is so vital, not just to how much you're paying to heat your home, but how much you're paying for basically everything else. Yeah, I mean, this is on top of everything else, right? I mean, this is on top of two decades of, um, you know, not you could call it cost disease, but it, 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 an escalating cost of living crisis for everyone where you have um, a huge inflation in um, non-tradable goods and services, so education and housing and uh, food, uh, I think clothing as well. Perhaps not clothing, but a lot of the things that we need to just get through life has gotten somewhat too expensive. And now, if you pay fifty percent of your um, of your income on housing costs, and you have you suddenly have an energy bill that's doubled, um, there's almost no way out as a consumer. Rather than you, you're not going to accumulate any savings, mm-hmm. you might not get even even get through the day, and you might have to go further into debt. And that's the consequence of not properly regulating energy markets, I suppose. Um, <laughs> of just assume, uh, as we say on, on, on TF, it's the, um, the assumption that if you structure the market correctly, some, um, some sort of you know, genius Shumpterian creative destroyer will sort of come in and apply his, the magic of his, um, you know, uh, his technological heroism to it to make the world better for everyone. We call that essentially a faith that a wizard will fix it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's usually like um, A leads to B, and between like there's a in brackets a miracle happens. Essentially, like there's always one part of that argument that is just like you know um, TBD, so to say, something will happen, and then everything will work out fine. And I mean, we talk about price inflation, and as you say, right, the price inflation of homes, of education, of uh, foodstuffs, uh, and energy, and so on, and it's. It's not. I don't. I don't think. Sort of. We're, we're claiming like yes, that the energy market is at the root of all of this, but rather that this is such a good example of the way that sort of the the technocratic management of uh, the EU, but you know the UK has has some similar. Um, it has some similar approaches. Uh, it bids on many of the same electricity markets. So like this applies to us too, if not directly, um, but that we have continually taken these decisions in the face of. You know, a globalizing world to sort of say, yes, daddy, please, more exposure to 
um, more exposure of like citizens to uh, the issues stemming from globalization as like because when one of the as the state removes these safeguards because that's really what's happening with the liberalization of an energy market with the liberalization of speculation on energy it's the i i see it anyway as the removal of a political buffer between people and the vagaries of global markets and that in all of these cases it is the removal of that the stripping back of that political buffer that was you know it goes back to sort of reaganism third wayism it goes back to the sort of ambitious European project of the 1990s and the way these things were structured and these assumptions that they made that, well, everything will be fine forever. And, you know, it feels as though, you know, there was, we went from, we went from this brave new world of sort of everything being liberalized and freed from sort of state control or whatever to we cannot, it is politically impossible to do anything else because we can't threaten the profits of the energy sector. We can't threaten the the jobs that those profits bring. Um, what do you want to do? There's a war uh, between Russia and Ukraine, and we should you know get into like how Europe got into this situation where it became so dependent on Russia for gas, which basically allowed to set the price and so on. But that it is the stripping away of the political between the experience of the individual and the sort of speculation and realities of sort of everything from global high finance to um, you know just energy firms uh, setting prices. Yeah, I mean that that's definitely true. Uh, I wouldn't just to get back to your, your initial point. I wouldn't actually can, technocracy can mean different things in different places. I mean, there are countries that have far more regulated um, commodity sectors, far more regulated capital accounts, um, and they do very smart, you know, industrial policy and uh, developmental policy, which is an absolutely technocratic endeavor. And they actually managed to to pull off uh, absolute miracles in some way, and they they they've, they've insulated themselves from the vagaries of the global economy to a greater extent. You know, it's like China, for instance, or India to some extent. Um, and and it's just that that different ideas took hold there at different times. The European project was unfortunately conceived in decades in which this type of thought was absolutely ascendant, and that got baked in institutionally. And as you say, once it's, it's institutionalized, it's very hard to change for procedural internal reasons. Too many veto players are involved and um, the political cost of doing anything is very, very high. Uh, you need Often you need unanimity voting within the EU to change anything uh, substantial. Um, and globally, the, the coalitions are no longer there to sustain a different kind of uh, to, to to revert to a different kind of system where the state has far more control and which markets are, if you want to use the word, embedded um, in, in in society and, and serve different needs, um, that that simply isn't there. So it's it's the rise of finance, which finance which coincides with this particular macroeconomic framework um, and these particular um, market structures that we see everywhere. Um, and now sort of finance is, is, is endangering the whole thing, including its own profits, but it's made politics into this empty shirt, which has, which no longer has enough um, fetters to, to, um, to rein in markets, unfortunately. And now, as you see in the commodity trading market, which I said before, is perfectly unregulated and always was, frankly, there are like an, it's like an oligopoly of large companies, which, um, you know, take out uh, to unbelievably highly levered uh, to to actually 
buy the commodities, ship them to their uh, end market. Um, they rely on on on, on these uh, on a small set of European banks, and they're very very vulnerable to um, margin calls um, uh, in, in cases where commodity prices um, skyrocket. Uh, th- that's inter- very dangerous, and they're they're now asking for central banks to provide emergency liquidity to these um, very high high levered market, which are, markets which are running out of liquidity. So there's a certain oh, sense. I, which, I didn't know I was interviewing Zoltan Posar. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I, I, I um, yeah, I, I'm I'm not that big of a fanboy of Zoltan, but um, um, I think this is also a point you would make. Yeah. No, I'm 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 just kidding. Um, so no, it's it's it seems as though right. Yes, as you say, right. There is this this perfect. There's that we are headed towards this perfect storm where the vo- where as if I understand you correctly, the volatility of high finance is threatening is as you say threatening its returns as this oligopoly seeks uh, emergency credit to keep this rickety steam engine that we've built ourselves moving. Yeah, yeah, and, and the and the volatility itself. Um, is the reason why you have the social unrest, really. Because institutionally, you can't adapt to very volatile prices either, uh, as well, right? I mean, you have some countries can better than others. So if you look across the Middle East and North Africa which, and, and Sub Saharan Africa, which are the regions which are, regions which are most exposed to very high uh, foodstuff prices, so grain in particular, but also barley, um, oil seeds, and these kind of things that come, that, that are produced in Ukraine and Russia where they're actually quite cheap to produce and they, these poor countries rely on these exports. Some countries have an institutional capacity to deal with volatile prices. So Egypt has state firms which um, buy up a, a great deal of, of, of domestically produced wheat and export, uh, imported wheat um, and they control prices by con- controlling the supplies. So they have huge grain silos throughout the country and they can soften um, these price shocks. Other countries have a fairly good domestic supply of, um, of of grain like Morocco because they have very good irrigation agriculture. Other countries don't have this. So it's the volatility that kills them. Uh, if they have in a, in a single decade, two uh, enormous spikes in, in, in food prices and commodity prices, they run out of um, foreign reserves eventually because their input bill um, ratchets um, up and they can't stomach it um, socially because every time you have these huge repercussions politically that just don't ebb, and then another wave comes, and then it just gets worse over time. Mm. And and I think sort of just to to round it to round us out sort of back to to Europe as well, right? You know, we've got these, we, we, as you say, sort of the countries in the Middle East and North Africa are extremely vulnerable to uh, price shocks in energy, food, and how energy and food interrelate, and all this stuff. Um, especially sort of specifically the uh, energy and food that's exported from uh, Ukraine and, and, and Russia. Um, but then I, th- I guess we say, well, how do we deal with this, uh, these problems in, in Europe, this unrest in Europe is, uh, is, is austerity, is, is crackdown, is rolling, is the slow rolling back of expectations, you know, and, and, and so on. I'm always sort of put in mind of how, you know, Europe tends to respond to these crises um, by making it so that if there's a fire on a Greek beach, people die because Germany said that you know Greece can't have a fire department anymore for its beaches, you know, and so yeah, the the, the cause of social unrest in, in in Europe is yeah you you have declining real incomes, rising bills, etc., and you have 
little to no growth and therefore little to no um, income growth and social mobility, but you have embedded growth obligations. Like people expect to be li living as well as their parents, but then because, of course, reality is that they're probably going to never be able to afford a house or accumulate savings and going to live quite precariously for a lot of their life, um, that's where then the, the, the uh, political enmity comes from, right? It's, it's a, bit, a bit different, but it, it has the same source fundamentally. Yeah, and I guess sort of by way of kind of you know summing it up a little bit, I think this kind of whole you know half hour conversation really has been the story of how these things have been not just economic realities but political choices about how people experience the economy, and they were built on a set of very shaky assumptions. And you know that if you want to understand why sort of this you know population in Europe that is. As uh, sort of low incomes, low savings, very little, um, you might say, uh, 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 propensity to raise either of those things is being shocked by much higher prices, and there seems to be kind of little little political will to sort of really do anything about it outside of France. Um, you know, this is kind of the story of how that happened in an international financial and also at a European level. These are all political choices, the decision not to invest in renewables and, and, and things like heat pumps for electrification in places like Germany, for instance, those are entirely political decisions and they exposed you far more to this entire energy crunch globally and politically to Russia. Um, but also the, the choice to unravel and unleash the derivatives, derivatives markets in the early 2000s was also a purely political choice where, in fact, the financial industry um, lobbyists snuck in an amendment to a, a bill um, at the, the last, you know, at the stroke of midnight, more or less. So all these things, if I may, you know, I, if I can return to that onion example, it can be done quite easily. Then it just needs to be political, uh, the, the political will to do it. So, you know, Eisenhower got mad at the fact that there were, that there were no onions uh, supplied at some point. They passed this bill. And since then, since... Seven, for the last 70 years, there hasn't been a single onion derivative traded uh, in Chicago at the Mercantile. Uh, people got mad about it, but you know, and he said, fuck you, sit down, this is going to happen. And, and the, the same thing could happen to um, the current system. Uh, and it would hurt um, the big uh, brokerages and banks, but that shouldn't uh, concern anyone else. Really. Mm. Well, I want to say, uh, Dominic, it has been an absolute delight talking to you uh, for the last half hour. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. And I'm going to throw back to uh, myself in the past and or future uh, to do the end matter. I'm sure Milo has plugs, all that stuff. So I'll see you probably with a slightly different voice in just a sec. Well, I for one really enjoyed that segment. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. It was very good. I what thought. did we all did we all learn a little thing or two? So I, learned, I, learned, oh. I learned that if I don't know how to finish a joke, I can just say, I don't know, come. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I learned, I learned that, I learned a long that time like, ago, the future Alex. of Europe, the future of cohesiveness in Europe is dependent on having uh, a healthy generation of young men who come constantly. That's true. That's true. Kuma generation. That is right. Um, so yeah. uh, listen to Eurotrash with uh, Anton and Dom. Uh, and also, thank you very much for being a patron of TF. Uh, it has been very <sighs> fun talking to, God damn it, you mm. today, uh, all about. Uh, the 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 things that but both the movie NFT mm. and also the stuff about Europe. That's uh, right. So we'll see you in the free episode in a few short days. Oh, also, I'm doing a show in Tallinn in Estonia on I think the second of June, whichever day the Thursday is. I think it's the second, or it might That's be the, the day first. I'm going on holiday. 
Oh, well, there you go. But not to Tallinn. You're coming to Tallinn. You're no, chase no, I'm me not down. coming to Tallinn. Um, I'm going to uh, Spain. So oh. uh, any listeners in Spain... Uh, don't, don't find him. I'm going to be in your country, so <laughs> let that be enough. <laughs> let that be enough for you, you hogs. Um, yeah, Tallinn, either the 1st or the 2nd of June. There'll be a ticket link on my website, which is always in the description. So if you are in Tallinn, which I know some of you are, um, why not come to that? You can go see the opera as well. Yeah, you can. You can be in the film Tenet. <laughs> Some weird the shit NFT might version. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Well, no. Like, yeah. Instead of like the instead of the opera scene, uh, it's it's going to be like your comedy show, and that's actually been used as a way of like um, eradicating secret agents. Uh, but you don't really realize it because you're back. You you've reversed in time. Wait, hang on. Isn't the opera scene in Kiev? I think that it's the no, but it was filmed. No, it was filmed, but it was filmed in talent. Fade up. Ah, I see. Yeah, yeah. I think you actually should just fade in the music over that conversation. That'd be funny. (laughs) 